Welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. Wherever you be, it's always a great pleasure to have you along on Dean at Stumps, and I sincerely hope that whatever you're doing, you are keeping safe and uh, staying out of trouble, really, because that is the only way that we are going to fight this pandemic that continues to cause mayhem around the world. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Dean at Stumps. My name is Dean Duplessis, and it's a great pleasure to be with you, as I think I've already alluded to. Now, you also can listen to interviews with the likes of 19-year-old sensation Tawanda Muyeye, who recently won the Wisdom School Cricketer of the Year Award, Zimbabwean-born, but uh, now based in Eastbourne in the UK. You can also listen to the likes of Sean Pollock and Michael Vaughan, and believe me when I tell you we have another big name coming up. Yes, indeed. So, it's wonderful to be with you again and uh, you'll remember that in the previous podcast, we caught up with legendary commentator, former fast bowler, Danny Morrison. It's one of those where you either love him or you maybe tend to lower the volume on your television ever so slightly. That is predominantly when he gets into his T20 mode, be it PSL, be it IPL, no matter what. He does have a slightly unique way of commentating. And he explained a little bit as to why he does it and uh, that he doesn't always necessarily feel like doing it, but when he then does get into that persona, that high-octane style of commentary, well, then uh, it is certainly something that he likes doing. So we're going to listen to the second and final part where he goes into detail and uh, talks very vividly about his memories of arguably New Zealand's best ever captain, Martin Crowe. That's up for debate, of course, depending on which era you supported New Zealand. And, uh, of course, the success that New Zealand had in the 1992 World Cup. However, what we're going to do uh, before we do that is we do need to bring you a very important message. Good day, my fellow Zimbabweans. My name is Karen Mutasa, and I am a trustee of the Solidarity Trust Zimbabwe Fund. Solidarity Trust is a group of people who are from the private sector as well as professionals, doctors, and business people around Zimbabwe. We were concerned about the health sector not being ready to accept COVID patients. We have embarked on a project, first of all, to get the St. Anne's Hospital resuscitated after being shut down for many years. This project is really on its way to being open in the next 10 days. We are also working with Ekusileni as well as Mutare and Shishavane and Vic Falls to assist in opening facilities there for people who may contract COVID-19. We have a fundraising project going on at the moment, which is really, really important in order for us to be able to fight this pandemic. We would so appreciate any donation that you may be able to assist with this project. You can go to our page www.sotsim.org in order to donate. Please spread the word because we need to be able to get these hospitals facilities all ready in time for anybody who is in Zimbabwe so that they will have 
a chance to get treatment and to be able to save their lives. It is really important as well for us to be able to raise as much funding as we can in order to support the incredible health sector, the nurses and the doctors who are operating the 2019 hotline number, which we have in conjunction with the Ministry of Health. You can phone 2019 if you need any telemedicine and to be able to get a consultation before rushing off to go and check in at the hospital or at a doctor. You can get tested at home. So the 2019 number is really important for you to call if you have any symptoms. But more importantly, we really, really need to raise as much funding as we can. Thank you to Dean Duplessis for allowing us to be able to broadcast on his podcast for you to support Sotsim. Once again, you can go to our donate page fund, which is on www.sotzim.org or our Facebook handle, Twitter and Instagram. Thank you once again. God bless you all. And just remember, united together, we can fight this pandemic. You're listening to Dean at Stumps, hosted by Dean Duplessis. Thank you very much indeed to Karen Mutasa for that important message. Yes, every little bit helps. Whatever you are able to donate will go a very long way towards oh, so many things, saving someone's life who potentially has it, or just ensuring that more and more equipment is also brought into the fray. So very important that please, whatever it is that you are able to support, uh, and if you're based here in Zimbabwe, even if you give them a call on 2019, just to say, we really appreciate what you're doing. And um, you know, maybe just have a chat and see if there's anything that you can possibly do to help in any way if you're not able to financially support them. Because money certainly is very tight for everybody in this moment in time. Right, so on we go with the show. Danny Morrison featured in our previous one. It was the first of a two-part interview with Daniel Kyle Morrison. Uh, and, well, he certainly explained everything about commentating and uh, then started to get into the memories of his test career, which many people wanted to actually know about. Now, how important was Martin Crowe, their captain, the late Martin Crowe, who passed away a couple of years ago? How important was his captaincy? And were there times where the rest of the world didn't really pay attention to what this leader, who was 20 years ahead of his time, was trying to achieve? Yeah, absolutely, Dina. It it it, uh, it shows the genius that is the late great Martin Crow and the coach Warren Lees. Uh, some kudos to him as well to back what Crowe had thought about in a strategy and have a go at because Crow had also played a lot of cricket in England in the county scene in the eighties. Right. Um, he he had such a great cricket mind and to, to think there and think very openly and very laterally to see what else they could do in terms of strategy. We certainly didn't play very well leading into that World Cup. In fact, we, we had a test series which we lost our first test series in New Zealand, on New Zealand soil. Get this, it's a great record. New Zealand never lost a test match in the 1980s because of that great Richard Hadley, Martin Crowe, uh, you know, all those great players yes. that played in that 80s side at home. In fact, the last time New Zealand lost a test series was in 1979 against Pakistan, um, in, yeah, in early 79, yes, we didn't play big series. I only played three match series, but never lost the series in the 80s. And it wasn't until that beginning of 92, we lost to England 2-0. 
And I remember sobbing into a birthday cake. It was my birthday in in the test match we lost at Eden Park. And um, Beefy Botham wasn't playing and he arrived late because he was doing so much pantomime and partying. He arrived late (laughs) to the series. And they were laughing and he he lightened the load a little bit too. Um, I was very down. I'll never forget it. And we lost that test series. Then lost the one day as 3-0. So kudos to Crow and Lees to think outside the square and go, what about taking pace off the ball, as you mentioned, Dean, and because our surfaces were so slow and low at that time, um, sharing them a lot with rugby grounds, apart from Wellington, uh, really the rest of them were rugby test match venues. And so the cricket pitches were very slow. And so then there was that whole thing that if listeners, uh, perhaps new to this podcast, don't think right back to that time at 92. Roddy Latham, as you mentioned, opening the batting with Great Bash, he was part of the dibbly-dobbly and wobbly, which was, of course, a bit of Gavin Larson and Chris Harris with his little booming little banana swingers and Rod Latham fiddling himself, bowling a few little uh, little swinging little wobblers where the keeper could either stand up or stand not very far behind the stumps. And that whole strategy of having Dipak, and I remember the Nets, because I've asked this recently too, Dean, was that he was happy to try and bowl with the new ball. And he had done it in some first-class cricket, to be fair, because he played for Auckland, um, having married and moved to Auckland from Worcestershire and playing cricket in club cricket in Auckland and then qualifying for New Zealand. Right. He, um, he played in terms of that Auckland side and opened the bowling with a red ball from time to time because of some of the pitches that, that warranted that. So here we come into 92, and you're so right in terms of really smart thinking from Crow and Coach Lees to then say, let's do this with the new ball and take pace off because all the opening batting combinations around the globe will have been always facing medium, fast, out-and-out fast bowling. So it was a real coup, that. And then on top of that for Great Batch, who he and I didn't play in that opening game against the Aussies, and, and we won, and Crow got that 100 at Eden Park. Oh, yes. Great Batch... Missed the first two games, ironically. And then cricket lovers who are in Southern Africa will appreciate his first game was against South Africa at Eden Park. Indeed. And that's where, yeah, and he teed off. And he was given the licence to do that. And I think that was, again, a wonderful strategy from his mate, Martin Crow. They both went to Auckland Grammar together. I think Paddy Greatbatch was a year behind Crowey at school. And so they were as thick as thieves. They played club cricket together. They played in the underage, like under-12s and stuff, that far back. So they were great mates. And, and then he said to, he would have said to Paddy Greatbatch, mate, go out there. I need this from you. We need to get off to a rip-roaring start. You've got a licence. And he went out there and just expressed himself. And you're quite right, too. It wasn't just the two Sri Lankans who really ignited that and initiated this you know, that first opening stanza of 10 overs, uh, Jayasuri and Kalu, uh, it really was Mark Greatbatch. And I don't think he gets enough kudos for I that agree. too, too. In terms of being a fire starter, initiating in 50 over cricket way back then uh, was wonderful. And Roddy Latham the same. But Latham, you could tell, he fed off Greatbatch because they're both that sort of type of player. And it really did set us alight. We won seven games on the trot until our bubble burst, as you rightly say, Rami's got that 100 in Christchurch, Rami's Raja, and then we had to play Pakistan again and lost to them in the semi-final. So the only side New Zealand lost to in that World Cup in 92 was the overall winners in the end. Um, but I've got to say, Dino, a wonderful, magical time of my life. For that month, that team that 
superseded everyone's expectations and even got to a semi-final was amazing in itself, given the hiding we'd come off against the Poms uh, leading into that World Cup of 92 at home was was truly remarkable. And and does your mindset begin to change as a team when, you know, you, you get into a situation where, first of all, you say, well, it's home advantage, so we should be able to beat this team, that team, and then it changes in saying, Guy, guys, we're actually in a situation where we can actually win this World Cup. You know, but it seemed to me that the approach of New Zealand on the field never changed. But but did the heart start to beat a bit quicker when you realised what you were capable of doing? <laughs> well, the, the great thing about the team meetings, and, and Crow was, it was so dominant, because when you look at that side, you look at it, well, the personnel of the 14 players there, Wrighty was on his last legs too. He, yeah. he played a lot of county cricket, and he was sort of a world-class player, but he was... You know, he was definitely in his twilight. The only real world-class outstanding player, if you like, to be honest with it, was, was M.D. Crow, and he was our captain, and he led from the front. And at team meetings, I'll never forget it, okay, we're up against the yellow team. So he didn't even call it Australia. Didn't even, okay, we're playing the red team or we're playing the blue team. That's how he went about it, and he really just nonplussed the opposition. Let's not get drawn into all their reputations and their legend status Let's just keep them, they're humans, they're our opposition, they happen to be wearing green today or red, right? Yeah. And I'll never forget, that. It, was, it was extraordinary. We look back, when you think about it, it just, let's look at our own performance. Let's look at what we can do in our own backyard and the personnel we've got here to do the job. And it was fascinating when you think back on it. If a guy, for Crowe, what, he was 29 then? He was, yeah, he was 30 at the end of that year. Yeah, end of yeah. 62, he was 30. So he was 29. And he was at the peak of his powers. He won the player of the World Cup. He got the, he got the runs, he stood out, he dominated, and he won the car. And I, I remember getting a couple of hubcats, so I loved it. You know? <laughs> Sorry, Joe, I couldn't help myself. Um, so he won the car. And so when you look at the status of how he was and how he went about the strategy and all of that around that World Cup was fascinating. And you've touched on with your question, did we start to get ahead of ourselves? Heck no. Mm -mm. I think when I look back at it, we were just simply enjoying the occasion that was a World Cup in our own backyard. It was the first time it was in Australasia, in Australia, New Zealand, hosting it. And it was in coloured clothing because all the previous World Cups, as you know, Dean, were in white clothing, red ball. Yes. Three yes. in England and then the one in India in 87. So here we were with the coloured clothing, South Africa to be too fair to, invited the brotherhood from the southern hemisphere here we were having south africa re-entry into international cricket added to it immensely it was huge so that was brilliant to have all of that there and you had the likes of alan donald and the, you know you suddenly had kettler vessels going from playing for australia because of an isolation he wanted to play international cricket to then move back and he was captaining south africa so it had all of that <laughs> dynamic as well yeah. and zimbabwe into the fold there they were about to get, to, in terms of that old season, about to get test match status. Yes. So you had all this neat thing and, if you like, real shift in the game of cricket. Um, the power of the game was suddenly shifting. It was great to see. And it wasn't about just so much the old guard of England and Australia. You had India starting to become this massive power as well. And so when I looked at it, um, really smart thinking from Crow and these guys about how we went about things and just kept it so simple to not get carried away with ourselves. It was the next game, we're up against the blue team. The next game, 
we're up against the red team and whatever. And so I think what freaked us out a little bit at the end was probably where Crowey, we did the thing, we put 260, what, 260 on the board. Yeah. And back then it was like getting 350 today. And we lost Crowey. He could he could go back out there with his torn hamstring and he wanted to save himself if we made the final, he could actually play the final. And that was the strategy. Let Wrighty take over and Crowey, we need you for the final. We've got 260 on the board. Jeez, you know, you'd think we should win it from here. Well, that I think the one time we possibly did, Dino, get slightly ahead of ourselves was that scenario and Crowey couldn't come back on the park and that's where the wheels clearly started to come off. Uh, and he couldn't come back and marshal the troops. He was so good at marshalling the troops, wasn't he? I remember mm. he, made, what, he made 91 and he was run out, unfortunately, uh, if I remember correctly. 90, so mm. he got 90-odd and, and then was run out. But what what sort of a captain was Martin David Crow? I So I, I will just give my opinion, and for goodness sake, correct me if I'm wrong. I get the feeling that there was a genius who was... 20 to 30 years ahead of his time, captaining uh, a very good side. I mean, not only was he one of the finest batsmen, but he he had a brain. He really did have a, a, a thinking brain. But I also do feel that at times maybe he got a bit, I won't say bored, well, was he a bit temperamental? So, for example, sometimes he wanted the captaincy and then other times he didn't want the captaincy. <laughs> did that sometimes get to him? You know, where, So could he sometimes be a bit aloof? So you could approach him and he'll be full of ideas, give you a good handshake. Other times he'll say, which I suppose is human, leave me alone. I need to just be a bit, I need to be mm. alone and go into my own little world, my own little bubble. Mm. Yeah, I think you do. That there was, Crowey's book came out when he finished playing, I think it came out around, uh, was that 96, 97? And his, was, his, his own one that he co-wrote uh, was Out on a Limb. The other one was done by a very well-known journalist in New Zealand, and it was called The Tortured Genius. Um, and, of course, Crowey didn't quite get on with this journalist. Right. But in subsequent years, when it all finished and died down, they, they became quite good mates in Wellington. And so uh, when you, you're knowing all the history of that unfolding, it's fascinating. Listeners obviously won't on your podcast, but Crowey was like that. He was very much, you know, he was on that different plane. He was way up on that different level to the rest of us. And because he was such a talent and because he was so driven and hungry to do well uh, and succeed and be one of the best uh, that was going around from little old New Zealand was going to take a big effort. And he was unique. And you're quite right, Dino, that in terms of strategy and thinking outside the square and really uh, spending a lot of time and sussing what he wanted to try and get out of it, given the arsenal he had, because Martin Crow inherited the side that was very young, and you had no, he didn't have Jeff Crow's brother, Martin Snedden, and Johnny Bracewell retired. retired. Uh, Ewan Chatwood had failed and finished the year before that. So you had that real strong nucleus of that 1980s side, particularly the bowling arsenal that uh, had, had finished up. So he had to he had to shift and move and be, you know, really. Uh, smart and shrewd about things and he was very good at doing that and you're quite right and then the other side of him he just got frustrated with us yeah. because we were if you like we were, we were inverted commas we were muscles compared to him yeah. and um, he was on such a different level and you could see it, it did and I and you, and you make a fair point he was quite frustrated with us at times because we couldn't quite execute the plan what he was trying to do uh, and that you know that annoyed him at times and that's understandable um, when you're that good but um God rest his soul, because he also was so ahead of his time. Um, I'll quickly touch on that. Cricket Max, 
Uh, you know, you've got 2020 oh, yes. now, yeah. but I believe the game, which we had a league on a Friday night, which really uh, filled the void of Friday night rugby. And, of course, podcast listeners of your show in, in, in Southern Africa know the game of rugby union well. And, of course, rugby union is, is the code in New Zealand. And so the Friday night football thing was filled in beautifully with this cricket max, which was four lots of 10. So still, you know, 40 overs, like 20, 20 years, but four lots of 10 and hitting in a zone back over the bowler's head that six became 12 and four became eight because he wanted to reward classy, classical batting, not slogging. And so Crow was so ahead of his time with this hybrid game with an American guy because he could see the baseball analogies with it and to be played under lights, and to paint the outfield so it looked like a pinball machine at times. Um, I'll never forget, too, I'll just throw this in too, Dino, that I got told off from, he called me a clown on air. I was commentating with him because he, he had the straight hit that, you know, you'd have an umpire there who'd wave a flag. If it went for six through the two flags, through the max zone, as we called it, and it was painted on the ground max zone, six became 12. Right. Now, I wanted to, when we were doing another game on air with Crowey commentating, he was calling... And I was the colour commentator. I said, mate, why don't we get another area there over extra cover? Because then if it's a left-hander, it'll be a nice still pick-up clip shot. And it'll still be a good cricket stroke. It won't be a slog, it'll be a flick shot. And for a right-hander, it's a gorgeous extra cover drive. For six, that becomes 12, and it'll just be brilliant. And we could light it up at night, Crowey, stick lights in the beans, and it'd be like a pinball machine. And he just looked at me and went, it's now 15 for one. Thank you, Crunchy, the clown. And then, of course, he had to go to a TV break. And Mike was 15 for one. And he just went and looked at me, what the hell are you doing? Are you taking the piss out of my game or something? I said, no. I said, I think it's got legs to go to that. I want to see it like a pinball machine lit up. So I was just embracing what he was on about. But it just showed the genius of him as if to say, don't you dare. Don't you dare, little Morrison, you midget. Have a crack at my product, at my invention, so to speak. And I thought, yeah, there's the genius. There's the guy that you do not mess with um, and get on the wrong side of. Because, <laughs> man, you concur the wrath of MD Crow. You knew you'd been, been put in your place for sure. Uh, one thing, I suppose I better bring a bit of a Zimbabwean aspect into it because it is a Zimbabwean podcast, but he, he seemed to, for some reason, have a real soft spot for Zimbabwe, did Martin Crow. I'm not entirely sure why, because there were, well, the 1987 World Cup, I don't know if you were a part of that game, Zimbabwe nearly mm. beat New Zealand, thanks to Dave Houghton's brilliance uh, with yes, the 142. Right. But, but he always... Whenever people try to belittle Zimbabwe and say that they don't belong in the test arena, and there's a few other former players I can mention, but Martin Crowe always seemed to have that, I don't know, that little soft spot for them. I, I wonder why that would be, Danny. Well, I think when you look at the size, we're the same. I mean, New Zealand is only now, I think, close to 5 million people yeah. in, in Aotearoa, in, in New Zealand. So, again, it was that whole underdog thing, uh, the smaller dog up against the big dog in the neighbourhood. And I think he also could see the sensibility of growing the cricket fraternity, growing the cricket family. And it wasn't just about that. And I, and I understand it. And I've, been, I've had discussions with former Zim players uh, and good mates, Ali Campbell and, and, and Pommy Mbangwa, about when you sat in the dressing room with South African players back there. And there was always that, well, we're the bigger brother. Yes. You know, there was that slight inferiority of, you don't really rate us. Yes, we're playing on the same theatre, on the same stage, but, you know, you, you could be put in your place. You know where you sit. And we felt that a bit with Australia. And, and, and it's totally understandable, the sheer size of the country versus ours. 
and it was, and you're going to feel like the smaller cousin. And so I think for that was Zim, and with Crowey, he got that, and he was all about the underdog, most definitely having a crack and doing well. And I also think, you know, he came to there in 92 when um, Zimbabwe got test next yes, right. yeah, and toured there in 92. I am having a hernia. I couldn't go. It was that year at Lanx, and I couldn't go uh, on that tour. And Crowey did enjoy it there. He loved he loved in terms of Lake Kariba and in terms of being looked after by, you know, hosts there in Zimbabwe uh, and Davey Houghton. And, and he got on really well with Davey Houghton. He was a good mate of his. So, you know, Crowey did enjoy touring and I think he was looked after and respected uh, that someone new to the family coming along needed to be embraced into it. So, yeah, I can see why you think he had a soft spot because he did. He, and, and thoroughly enjoyed uh, playing in Zimbabwe and enjoying the, the hospitality. I remember him having a very funny jest with Andy Flower after the second one day international that New Zealand won. And uh, he went to Andy Flower because what had happened is Martin Crowd got to 94. He looked set for a very good 100. And the next thing had his off stump knocked out of the ground by an Edo Brandis Yorker. And uh, as opposed to being angry and annoyed, which I'm sure he was, he, he came and he said to Andy Flower, how's your chest? And Andy said, my chest is quite fine. Thank you. Why do you ask? And he said, well, the off stump went back so far. I actually thought thought it was going to hit you in the chest. <laughs> <laughs> Gold. Oh, you mentioned Edo there, because now I'm living, I live north of Brisbane on the Sunshine Coast, and Edo does too. Yeah. And when I moved here in 06, uh, that, that, that summer of 06, 07, Edo was coaching the Sunshine Coast Scorchers, which play, you know, that we're based, we're sort of just over 100 kilometres north of Brisbane Central. And Edo coached that side that would play down in the Brisbane A-grade comp. So it was lovely catching up with Edo in those first couple of summers that he was still involved with the Sunshine Coast Scorchers because, of course, he'd moved out, I think, around, I think, about 2002, uh, 2001, around that yeah, time. Around about there, yeah. uh, To come and to immigrate to this part of the world because of his connection with Carl Rackerman, who'd obviously had an involvement with Zimbabwe cricket coaching. Um, yeah, Edo moved his wife and his, and his three daughters to this part of the world. So it was lovely catching up with Edo in those early days. Danny Morrison, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. We could carry on talking all day. I mean, there was there was somebody <laughs> well, <nice>. actually <laughs> at night, absolutely. Uh, but there was somebody who was asking me. I better ask this question. Your, your top score in Test match cricket is forty-two. Now uh, you'll be the first to admit that batting was <laughs> was not one of your strong points. It's a bit like asking me to eat carrots. And and believe me, uh, let, let me tell you a story. Eating carrots is not as good for your eyes as people think it is. I promise you, they've done nothing for me over the years. So. And, Neither did batting. How on earth did you manage to manufacture 42? And who was it against? Um, my 42 was in, it was funny, like a couple of things I do remember, like, of course, that. Yes. And it was where I got my best uh, haul, that 7 for 89 against the Aussies was 93. So this was a year later, 94. And people laugh at this. Around 93, 94, I actually got some runs. I was... I, was, I played a bit of league cricket in England in 93 when I got married and I worked on my batting and done okay with it and spent a bit of time in the middle. And I got a 46 as well, not out at the whacker right. and got stuck in a bit to Brendan Julian, who's really an expat Kiwi and I still call him a New Zealander. <laughs> um, but, um, well, he was, he was five when he went to Perth. Then he came back and he played. He went to secondary school in Tauranga in the Bay of Plenty of New Zealand his last couple of years of high school. So he really, I, I, I rhythm him about it. Um, so yeah, I got a couple of I got a couple of forties in that summer of ninety three ninety four, and the forty two was against Waka and Wazi. And, and Wazi, to be fair, um, I came trudging out the bat, and I 
he, he, I think he got five or six already, and he ended up with seven for. But I came out to bat, and I'd filled in for him in that season of 92 when they won the World Cup. Yes. Pakistan were touring. So I got to fill in for the great Wazim Akram at Lancashire that one season, or half a season, because I had my first hernia operation. Yeah. And and he, I was coming at the bat, and he was sitting down, I was trudging out there. So I was at okay. nine then that summer. And behind me were what people I was, like Richard de Gruen had come into the side, um, and, and I think Willie Watson had got injured. So Simon Dool was even, I think Dooley was in the side. And even Dooley was batting, he batted at 10 behind me, because I got runs in Australia, and I came trudging, and there's Wazzy Macram sitting down, changing his, not only half and half spikes, because, you know, we'd often get tailor-made bowling boots, yeah. the full spikes on to bowl in. He was bowling in half and half. He even then was putting on plimsolls, so complete rubbers. And I'll never forget. And, he's, and I'm coming out to walk past him, and he goes, and I went, get away. I go, hello, Jack. You're changing your shoes. He goes, yes, Danny, look. Look at these. These are beautiful. <laughs> he goes, and he's putting on these rubbers. And I'm looking at rubbers. And he goes, yes, look, just a while ago, I got six for, for lengths in these. These are my favorites. And I'm like, <laughs> of course you do. And I just, you know, the whole cynical, yeah, right, thanks. And I walked out. Of course, first ball I faced. I ducked into one on the shoulder, and he was coming left arm round. It was that whole thing where the great was from started to come round the wicket. Here you see it, show the ball, now you don't. And it was just mayhem. And I got through that period, and then I ducked and flicked and, you know, flicked a couple to fine leg and squared a couple air, and then and Waka was steaming in. and he. So a lot of the time, I would just go forward, as I normally did, and head-butted a few uh, <laughs> over my career and took a lot on the body, which, funny, that was my thing, Dino the confrontation, because I knew I was going to get it back. We're yeah. always going to get it whistling around your grill or hitting the chest and just got on with it. Just wear a forearm guard and get out there. And so we'd often do that. And you got peppered a bit, but that was the was the enjoyment for me. And, you know, you'd sometimes wear a little bit on the helmet or, you know, you get clocked. Um, but I did, I managed to use the pace and the windy Wellington conditions, <laughs> a thick edge down to third mounted race away for four or a little squirt off your hip. And it raced to fine leg and beat fine leg. And I'll never Wakar got quite infuriated for a bit because I, I even then cover drove him for a couple of thick edges. Um, and somehow I got to 40. It was bizarre. And then, of course, I got out LBW to Wakar Yunus. And 40, as you mentioned, the score of 42. But it was a really neat time because it was the one season where I managed to get a couple of 40s and a couple of 20s as well. And people listening to the podcast, are you kidding me? I can't believe this. We'd have to get some television footage to see it and believe it. And I actually quite enjoyed doing the night watchman's job. When my mate, who used to play club cricket with me, first-class cricket with me, and a bit of test cricket was Martin Snedden, who oh, yes. was my lawyer too you know, at, at that time, and, and, and post and playing as, as a solicitor. Um, I did that night watchman's role once he retired in 1990 and really enjoyed it, Dean. It was, it was really just taking it on. And clearly everyone else was better than me batting at the other end. So I was batting for them yes, as part yeah. of the team strategy. And that's what, and, and to be fair to Martin Cryer, he said, Danny, take this seriously. I want you to do this job for us because it's for the team. If you're going to do this, I really want you to embrace it properly. I don't want that cheeky smile and that mad, zany, lunatic behaviour of yours. Um, I want you to – and so I did. It was, and, and there was a couple of seasons there where I'd hung in there and batted forever – but, you know, I didn't get many runs off and probably got naught not out or got out for naught. In fact, I remember one in Southern Africa podcasters, I got a naught not out batting with Chris Pringle, who was playing for his life in Cape Town uh, in that test match of 95. Oh, I remember I ended that. Up, yeah, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, if you look at the stats, I was naught not out yeah. of about 20-odd deliveries. And I'll never forget Chris Pringle 
screaming expletives as he was batting because he was stepping away. As Pring was a big guy with the size of a canary heart. He just had no ticker <laughs> and when he was batting. And the ball was being sliced, you know, sliced off the quick bowling of, you know, McMillan and co. Mm. And oh, that's how old Fiery was playing. Um, the redhead, what was his name? Jeez, he used to storm in, bowl quick. And and he got 30, I think, and I went in and batted ahead of him. <laughs> and he, he got 30, and I was not, not out. I'll never forget the coach going, oh, come here. Someone said, Danny, what a wonderful naught you've got there. <laughs> it's just been facetious. <laughs> but, yeah, your podcast is listening. How on earth did Morrison the Duckman get 42 against the two Ws? One of the highlights, I'd have to say, in my career as well, again, at the Basin Reserve. Dino, loved it to pieces. You're listening to Dean at Stumps, hosted by Dean Duplessis. What a character, what a wonderful human being he is. Danny Morrison talking to us about the, the 1992 World Cup, which I think many people will certainly, from a personal perspective, it was my favourite World Cup by far. Not only because it was my first World Cup I started paying attention to, that was when I started following cricket, but the format was absolutely wonderful. And everybody... Every team that participated in that World Cup actually won a game. And I don't quite know whether that's happened again, whether every single team has won a World Cup or has won a game, should I say, in that World Cup. Next man you'll be listening to is an absolute legend. He was sulky smooth as a left-handed batsman in the 1980s, and he continued to have that wonderful laid-back, sulky smooth approach when he entered the Sky Sports commentary box. I'm sure that gives you some sort of an idea as to... uh, who we will be hearing from. Thank you very much indeed for listening to the Dean at Stunt podcast, and we'll be back pretty soon. Until then, please stay safe. You've been listening to Dean at Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast. 